and welcome to the Q York podcast, brought to you from our local church in the beautiful city of York in the UK. The message you're about to hear is from one of our services, which also feature great live music and relevant movie clips. These can all be found on our blog, so to make sure you're getting the full experience, feel free to head over to qyork.co.uk and select blog to find the relevant content. There's also a huge selection of talks and live music videos on our media page, as well as a donate button if you'd like to show your appreciation and enable us to keep producing free content like this. Finally, to stay up to date on new blogs and events at Q, you can sign up for emails by filling in your name and email address at the bottom of any page on the website. But right now, it's time for the message. Good morning to you and those who join us across the globe. Uh, that was a clip from Downton Abbey, which uh, some of you will have probably been addicted to. Uh, when it was on, we're just running through it all right now, binge-watching. Uh, and uh, it sets up beautifully the scene of some things that I want to talk about this morning. Some interesting factors in there, you know, it's just when you look at things like that, of the conversation, Lady Sybil's ankles suddenly become a significant factor. Professional pride, personal perception, whether a thing is safe whether it's the opposite of safe, whether it may not work or whether it may work, putting somebody or something at risk on a whim, can you swear that it will work? Well, it might, it will, is it gonna be fine? All of those questions come up. Now, the reason I raise those is because last week I talked about isms and the danger thereof. And it really touched the sore spot with uh, some especially the suggestion that we may be witnessing the emergence of a newism I call scientism. That touched a few. Or, or the, 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 the suggestion that the personal particular favoritism of individual people has been brought into question as to its actual nature. And so some response has been quite abusive. And so being me, I'm gonna carry on and say more because we've touched a nerve for a reason. When we get defensive and protective, it's because a nerve has been touched. And guess what got Jesus crucified? Not because they said, oh, he's the son of God, he has to pay the sins of the world, we'll help him by crucifying him. It's because he was constantly touching a nerve in the community, in society, with individuals, and particularly among those who held their isms, Judaism, Phariseeism, so on and so forth. So let's just recap quickly on the definitions I shared with you. These are not my definitions. These are actual dictionary accepted definitions of isms. Ism has become a distinctive doctrine, cause or theory. Now, distinctive often means restrictive, in my experience. Uh, it's become oppressive and especially discriminatory attitude or belief. So isms become oppressive and a discriminatory attitude or belief. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I've never met an ism that does not express that in one shape or one form or another. 
uh, it's become an abnormal state or condition resulting from excess of a specified thing. In other words, we get overbalanced, overweighted on part of the whole thing from religion to politics to addiction. And I mentioned when it's addiction, alcoholism, an abnormal state of excess. Do you understand the principle? And the fourth one, the fourth definition was an ism becomes an adherence to a system or a class of principles. Once you embrace an ism, you will be strictly adherent to a system, okay? Now, in contrast, I gave you a dictionary definition, again, another dictionary definition of the ending word, itty. Remember, in the context of Christian. Itty. What's the itty about? Well, the it meaning of an itty is a state, character, or condition of being. This is how I like to best describe it. The state of being something is an itty. Christianity is supposed to be the state of being something. We have relegated it to merely the state of believing something. But it was always meant to be the state of being something. So in the case, in, in the case of our... Christianity, the itty gradually drifted into isms of various persuasions, evangelicalism, Methodism, Pentecostalism, and of course the big one that comes in there, fundamentalism. And it's no different to political ideologies, they've all done the same, whether it's socialism, communism, conservatism, or whether it's to do with philosophy or whatever, all have done the same. Uh, this drift, wherever it's occurred, is the root of much of our world's problems. And I'd like you to think about that because it is. Once the itty becomes an ism, it distorts the original message. This is in every ism. It distorts the original message into a distinctive doctrine, a discriminatory attitude, an abnormal state of excess and adherence to a system. So I want to introduce to you another definition of ism this week that we did not look at last week. And the definition is ism as a belief or system of beliefs accepted as authoritative by a group or school. Let me give you that again. A belief or system of beliefs accepted as authoritative. That's what I want to put the emphasis on. It has now become more than just a... A think about belief, it's now become authoritative by a group or school, both in reception and application. And that raises the question then of what is authority? What is authority? And by what criteria should we perceive someone or something to have it? See, this is very important. Just because a person is in a position of authority or has authority, it does not make them an authority. Shall I say that again? Just because a person is in a position of authority, or has authority, it does not make them an authority. Appointment is not an indicator of content. Anybody can be appointed to a position of authority, but whether in their content of who they are and the context of their character, they really are an authority is questionable. The video clip chosen was chosen to expose this very dilemma. Conflict between insightful doctor and highly qualified titled professor 
over the same issue. Now, what I have to say today, you can read one of two ways, and it could get very controversial, but it needs to be said, because we are now dealing not with an issue, but with a principle. Sometimes a little knowledge about the thickness of one's ankles can be the difference between an informed, life-saving decision and an expert, problem-causing decision. You see, do you have a problem with experts? Yes. I don't have a problem with expertise, but I do have a problem with what we perceive to be experts because that may, not, that may be the title they have been given or the position, but it might not necessarily be the expression of who they are. And I'm going to illustrate that as we go through this morning. The conflict between doubt and certainty, which we experienced here in the issue of Lady Sybil having the baby and two, two differing ideas about what needs to be done, the conflict between doubt and certainty pushes us to make choices we would most often rather avoid. That's been my experiences the last 17, 18 years. Conflict between doubt and certainty. I had a lot of certainty, but it was certainty about things I shouldn't have been certain about because there were questions about my understanding and application of those things. And the conflict between doubt and certainty pushes us always to make choices we would most often rather avoid. So because we'd most often rather avoid them, we try to escape the conflict between doubt and certainty, and so we begin to trust things and people because they give us certainty, and we reject others because they cause us doubt. The mention of expertise can intimidate us from asking relevant questions. Jesus' many brushes with the Pharisees and teachers, or they're even called in some translations of the Bible, experts in the law, are a great example of this. In Luke chapter 11, let me read you a few verses. From verse 46, Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, and they technically were, woe to you. Because you load people down with burdens they can hardly bear and you yourself do not lift one finger to help them. One of the natures of perceived experts is to load people with burdens but not give them the way to be free of the burden. Woe to, woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets and it was your forefathers who killed them. Or in other words, one of the problems can occur if we get this expert thing wrong is that we kill the prophets. Why do we kill the prophets? Because the prophets bring a word that foresees into our expertise something that we had missed or challenges us in our pride as an expert. Verse 52, woe to you experts in the law because you've taken away the key to knowledge. Taken away the key to knowledge, not given it. You yourselves have not entered despite being experts and you have hindered those who were entering because you don't consider them qualified. Those two little bits are added in by me. In the message, here's how Peterson puts it, you're hopeless, 
You religion scholars, you took the key of knowledge, but instead of unlocking doors, you locked them. You won't go in yourself and you won't let anyone else in either. Or in other words, my expertise stops you from having an opinion. Before 1611, and I'm taking a little longer for this section, but it's important. Before 1611, when the Reformation occurred, people were kept away from reading the Bible for themselves and church services were conducted only in Latin for exactly that reason. At least that happened in the West. Expertise bolstered by title and position was used to intimidate and create an underclass of people. I'm the priest. I'm the monsignor. He's the pope. You can't understand the Bible. I've been trained. I'm educated. I've been to seminary. You couldn't handle the Bible. You can't understand the Bible. You can't know God for yourself. You have to know him through my expertise. Do you understand the point that I'm making? And so people were bullied into silence. So what are the circumstances in which isms get created and thrive? Could it be in the space where certainty replaces curiosity? Albert Einstein, the great scientist, who we all know his name very well, was very self-effacing when he said this, but it's an interesting statement. Albert Einstein said, I have no special talent. I am only passionately curious. I would like to believe I have no special talent, but I am passionately curious. Every pilgrim who truly seeks the path of life must be passionately curious. The truth is that the space between doubt and certainty does create tension. And you see in that second clip from Downton Abbey, um, he's banned from the bed at least for a while because there's tension even between a husband and a wife. Now, I know that, um, that this is just from a novel. I know that it's not from real life. But, but the issues here are replicated in different measures, different levels, different time in all of our lives, in different circumstances. And it can cause division even between the best of us because this space between doubt and certainty and where it pushes us to can cause us really some great problems and some great issues. There are some statements there in the video that I think are so interesting. But you were so sure. You know, I would not hold anybody to account who would talk to me about who I have been in my lifetime and things that I have preached to you and say, and but you were so sure. And the, the challenge that you listened, she was saying, well, you know, you listened to the Harley Street doctor because he has position and title, but wouldn't listen to the doctor of our own daughter who knew us so well. You listened, that's another criticism that can be leveled on both sides of the argument. You listened, why did you listen? Why did you not listen? What came up as well is the reputation as an expert. And often we're trying to protect that reputation. And what we do is not always in the best interests of the people. And I say that as somebody who at times in my life has probably been perceived as an expert in spiritual matters and whatever, God forbid. And then the last one that I want to pick up on, you believed because. What's the because of why you believed? 
Have you believed because you are trying to avoid the conflict between doubt and certainty? And therefore, very naturally, no criticism here, we look for who we think is the best expert to advise us. Now, you have to understand, my comments come from a lifetime in a certain way of being, but I know that way of being has taught me many things. And one arena where the idea of expert has been used and abused is in the church. And where bullying and intimidation and methods and systems to say, I know something you don't know, and therefore to silence voices and to intimidate have been there. And so I see it in more places. Now there's a thing I want to introduce you to in our conversation, very much in line with what I am saying about isms and authority. And it's called identity protective cognition. This is a real thing, I haven't made this up. Identity protective cognition. And here's what it, identity protection cognition is. It's when reasoning is used not to discern the truth, but to form and persist in beliefs characteristic of a particular group, usually which to which you already belong. This is the tendency known as identity protective cognition. One of its main characteristics is a hardened resistance to exploring evidence that could challenge one's existing views. The defensive sentries are programmed on high alert at all times with rapid red alert to trigger words. I had trigger words about my beliefs about God and hell and heaven and the gospel and salvation and the cross and Jesus. I had trigger words and woe betide you if you spoke one of those trigger words because I'm coming after you. I'm going to crush you. I'm going I'm to stop you introducing into the conversation something that causes me to have to explore an evidence that may exist that I do not wish to deal with. We're all, believe it or not, subject to some level of protective, of protective cognition, sorry, of identity protective cognition because identity is such an important necessity in the makeup of what it means to be human. I don't know if you realize how much your identity is tied to your cognition, the things that you think and believe. As someone who's been a student of the Bible my whole life, I can now see this connection between identity, protective cognition, and the challenge to discover or understand one's true identity throughout the written narrative of the Bible. I can see all the struggles from Abraham to Jacob, to Peter, to Paul, to John the Baptist, and I could even say to Jesus himself, now having been raised by very sincere and committed Christian parents in a church where nominal was a dirty word and the Bible was the final authority on all things, I understand identity, protective, cognition and have witnessed it far too often in my own life Mostly through hindsight now, I wish I'd known it then and I wouldn't have done it, but by hindsight I can see I suffered from this thing called identity protective cognition. I was not open to hear. I were not, was not ready to question perceived authority in order that I might find the authority that comes from truth. So maybe you should think about it in the context of your own life. Or are you saying something that I've heard way too often? 
oh, I don't like to think of myself like that. So this, this clip is another great example of the misuse of authority under the banner of being the expert present. An ism is what it is because of the authority given to it. And that's what we're challenging this morning. I think it's really sad when in the attempt to obtain a specific result from a group of people, you have to say to them, just do it because I'm telling you, and if you don't do it, you'll lose 30% of your grade and you will fail the semester. That's intimidation and manipulation. Now, I like the response of the boy who was the Christian who was saying, I will not and cannot write, God is dead. And because he said, well, you know, when, when they had the conversation, he said, who will decide whether I won or lost the argument? The response, uh, the response was, I will. It's my class, I'm the expert, I'll decide. Uh, and his response was, no disrespect, but I'm not sure you can be objective. And his question, what about them? And then I thought this was such a powerful line. That's interesting, but why would I want to empower them. I propose to you that the gospel of Jesus is the greatest individual empowering message this world has ever experienced. When we turned it to an ism, we stopped it being empowering towards the people and all the power went to the expertise, the legal experts, the preachers, the leaders. We took it off the people. But right from the very beginning of what was supposed to be the formation of what we now know to be the church, it was to all of them, you wait in Jerusalem until you receive power and you will be my witnesses. Jesus said to the people, the things I've done will you do and greater than these because I go to my Father. He said, I'm this, this and this, now you go and make disciples. It's a gospel of empowerment. And so when I see this manipulated into something else that stinks of control, my antenna goes up and I get very concerned and that's what Jesus faced with the people who were so-called experts in the law. One of the greatest, if not the greatest attribute of the Christian message is the disbursement of authority and the empowerment of others and my my ministry has changed from focus here to try and empower you to disperse that authority in your pilgrimage, in your journey, in your understanding of God, in your definition of God, in your understanding of spirituality is to empower you and disperse the authority because I believe that's what Jesus did and it's why the authorities the legal authorities got worried and upset because power was going to the people and authorities will always try and take it back it's my class I'll decide remember I talked to you about identity protective cognition when the reasoning is when reasoning is used not to discern the truth but to form and persist in beliefs characteristic of a particular group usually the one to which you already belong well to finish I want to talk about curiosity as the answer to identity, protective cognition, and how to counteract whataboutism. Now, I don't know if you understand it. I didn't know. I had no idea. But whataboutism is a thing. 
It's actually a word and it's a defined thing. Whataboutism. We're all guilty of it. You know when you're losing an argument or you don't want to accept a point, what do you say? Yes, but... Yeah? Oh, yeah, but what about? It actually, there is a science around it. What aboutism? It's called now. I don't want to take time to talk about it, but it's a knee-jerk defensive reaction that we all have. Well, I hear what you're saying, Anth, but what about? Well, I know what you've said about experts, but what about? I know what you're saying about the message of Jesus and empowering people, but what about? It's called what aboutism, and it's a problem. See, there's nothing more quite so empowering. There's nothing quite so empowering of a group than the encouragement to be and remain incessantly curious. I want you to be curious. Jesus made statements to this effect, but let me jump back even further. Imagine if the father of faith, Abraham, had not been curious. When Hebrews 11 writes it this way in verse 8, By faith, Abraham, when called by God to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. What was driving him? Curiosity. Curiosity. Who is this God? What is this God about? What is this journey about? Who am I? What am I about? I think Jesus reflected that a little bit with a classic phrase that you will understand and know when he said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. In other words, get curious. Don't become defensive. Don't use whataboutism. Don't have that cognitive problem. Get curious about God. Get curious about truth in every aspect. Get curious about life and about yourself. I don't know if you know it, but there's actually a thing called curiosity science. Seriously, curiosity science. And it was partly born out of the belief that a person's truth is often nothing more than tribal allegiance in disguise. I find that a very powerful statement. Is your truth nothing more than tribal allegiance in disguise? That makes you think, doesn't it? Mine was. Mine was. My truth was nothing more than tribal allegiance in disguise to the faith, to belief. Now, I won't say faith, to belief as it had been presented to me in the way it had been presented to me in the smallest and every detail was my thing to defend my Pentecostalism, my church, what we were, who we were. I thought it was truth. But it was, it was nothing more, much of the time, than tribal allegiance in disguise, revealed by the unwillingness of individuals to bother to revise their belief in the light of new evidence. I find new evidence for new things every day. And I now find it would be arrogance not to believe that there is new evidence for new things. That would mean we know everything there is to know about God, what he is, who he is, and the world around us, and we don't. Now, the experimental data in this curiosity science tries to explain why exists. And here's what it says, and just give me a few minutes, this is important. Afforded a choice, low-curiosity individuals opt 
for familiar evidence consistent with what they already know or believe. If that's you, that you opt for familiar evidence consistent with what you already know or believe, you are a low curiosity individual. In contrast, high curiosity individuals prefer to explore novel findings even if that information implies that their group's position is wrong. Listen, I've, if I were to mark myself now, over the course of my life and ministry, I'd be writing wrong, wrong. Well, what did you believe about Helanth? Wrong. What did you believe about end times, Anth? Wrong. What did you believe about the crucifixion? Wrong. And I'm not afraid to say it. Because I have learned to catch the spirit of high curiosity, which I believe is the faith of Abraham, is a faith of high curiosity. And when Jesus comes, he's trying to bring the people to a faith of high curiosity, beyond the legalism and the restriction and the constriction of the isms that they were under. Could this be the Christ, is high curiosity? I look at everything now and say, could this be the Christ? Even some of the disasters in my life, could this be the Christ that's coming through? The curiosity, see, high curiosity people tend to form less one-sided and therefore less polarized views. That's why I want you to be that. But high curiosity risks less security and therefore fragile uncertainty, which is why some of you don't want to be high curiosity. See, the objectives of curiosity are directly opposed to those of identity, protective, cognition. One employs a seemingly hardened resistance to exploring evidence that could challenge one's existing views. The other carries an irresistible hunger for the truth beyond. So let me wrap this up by saying a couple of things. Society has failed to inculcate curiosity in its citizens for obvious reasons to do with authority. The church has been even more at fault in this, therefore making it easier to fall into group tribal alliances and with them the schisms of isms. If, as alleged, Curiosity killed the cat. But as also alleged, the cat has nine lives. Then the primary necessity of a cat is not the ability to avoid curiosity, but rather the ability to count. <laughs> there is therefore much reason to remain curious. I believe grace supplies us many lives. If it did not, curiosity would have killed this cat. But this cat has the lives of grace. 
that says, even when my curiosity means I don't always get it right, grace gives me another life and another life and another life and another life. It's not one opportunity. It's always opportunity in the spirit of grace that comes through Christ to us. Grace supplies us many lives. So I have the ability to count my lives and know the lives that I have in grace means that I can be high curiosity. To be curious about life. The grace supplies as many lives to be curious about life, to be curious about God, to be curious about Christ, to be curious about the potential reality of the kingdom of which he spoke, to wonder about all things. And so if I were to add a scripture today, I think it would be this. Blessed are the curious, for they shall see things others cannot. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. Now, if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, then we would love to hear from you. Feel free to drop us an email to info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. Don't forget there are blogs and all sorts of media to be enjoyed at qyork.co.uk, which are welcome to browse at your leisure. Until next time, enjoy the quest. <laughs>